It was really great to talk to David. He is doing a lot of work to really uplift his corner of the tree world, kind of where trees and science intersect. He's doing his best to share knowledge and educate and trying to leave the world a little better than he found it, and that's freaking awesome. So hats off to you, buddy. We really had a lot of fun talking to you. It was a great conversation, and really, you left us all inspired. So thank you for coming on the show and uh, sharing your time with us. Another shout-out, I wish I had the person's name. Whoever found the link in our description and gave us a nice little donation, that will uh, keep the beer flowing and the conversation going. So thank you for doing your part to uh, help Tree Thinking happen. That is much appreciated. I'll just shout it out. There's a link. If you want to do your part in keeping the conversations going, we'll do our best to keep the good conversations flowing. We do put a lot of work into it, so it, it feels good to be appreciated that way. Thank you very much. Support the show by sharing links, by telling your friends about it. There's been a lot of that going on, and it we have noticed in a big way. We've, uh, we've got more people listening, more feedback, more people going back and forth on social media, and that really stokes us out. This is all about building community and getting conversations going and telling jokes with each other and having a good time and just enjoying the tree world we're all lucky enough to be in. So thank you so much uh, for plugging in. Without further ado, take care of some business, and then we'll get right to it. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not, nor is it intended to be, a substitute for professional arboriculture advice and should never be relied upon to perform or direct arboricultural work. The Tree Thinking Podcast makes no representations as to the accuracy, completeness, or suitability of any information on this podcast and will not be liable for any damages arising from the use of any information in the practice of arboriculture or tree work. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and their appearance on the podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. The podcast and its hosts are not to be held responsible for misuse, cited, and or unsighted copies of the content within this podcast by others. The Tree Thinking Podcast may not be reproduced or distributed without the express written consent of the Tree Thinking Podcast. All right, you guys ready? Yep. Yeah. David has been climbing trees since 1995, but not as an arborist, as an ornithologist, a scientist who specializes in birds. He began climbing in the remote corners of Honduras to study birds in the canopy of the rainforest. This is where he learned the power of tree climbing. Nowadays, he's the executive director for Canopy Watch International, a nonprofit that facilitates canopy access for personal and scientific discovery. They do public climbs and trainings for scientists and arborists. And they do developmental work by training scientists in developing countries. On this episode of the Tree Thinking Podcast, we talk about the benefits of tree climbing, what it means to cross-train across industries, bridging the gap between tree climbing and scientific discovery. It's our pleasure to talk to Dr. David Anderson. All right, we're, uh, we're back for another episode. I'm really stoked about this. This episode came together <clears throat> on a big tree climb that we were doing uh, not long ago. Uh, our buddy Scott invited us to go climb a big fir tree, and uh, 
David was on the climb with us and we had such a good time kind of hanging out that we decided we'd talk a little bit about it on the podcast. So uh, before I get too far into it, I'm Andrew. Jamie. Becca. I'm David Anderson. Hi, everybody. Hey, hey, hey David. Thanks so much for coming on. <clears throat> oh. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, yeah. No, this is this. I'm really stoked. Uh, one of the things that I that's really kind of thinking about coming up to this episode that really kind of got me fired up is uh, one of the goals and kind of the mission statement of tree thinking was to build the arborist community and to share knowledge. I mean, there's so much information that I've learned since we've started this, just talking to people. And uh, hopefully some people have figured a thing or two out from kind of the nonsense that we've muttered along the way. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> um, okay. And that's, that's, you know, a lot of what Canopy Watch is doing as well. You guys are out there uh, educating scientists in the way of tree climbing. You're educating tree climbers in uh, the way of the wilderness and, uh, so yeah, want to want to give us a little bit of info about uh, Canopy Watch and and what your guys' mission statement is. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. And yeah, you know, like you say, the the tree climbing world is a really cool community of people, and I'm happy to be in that. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of thread in that fabric, and I just like to be a part of that fabric and to weave pieces together. So yeah, so thanks for having me on the show. Canopy Watch is a nonprofit organization. Uh, it was loosely created in 2015, but it became an official nonprofit in the year of the pandemic in 2020. Wow. And uh, many people who listen to this podcast probably know James Luce. Yes. James was a really knowledgeable tree climber and just a five star human being. And he was one of the people who helped found Canopy Watch. He was a good friend of mine. And I know a lot. I learned a lot about climbing from James. I was doing pretty good before I met James, but he took the game up. <laughs> Anyways, Canopy Watch is a is an education nonprofit. We're all about trees, tree conservation, and tree just tree empowerment for people. I found out a long time ago that when I take new people on tree climbs who have never experienced being on a rope, that it's a powerful experience to get off the ground. People really have to conquer their fear. You know, there's no, like, there's no warm-up. I mean, I have a rope in a tree that's 100 feet tall, and they climb to the top of the tree, and, you know, you get past your fear. At that point, it opens a whole new world and a whole new way of seeing not only the, the, the tree, but the, the nature that it lives in. And then I think the climber itself gets a new perspective on themselves when they when they push through their self-perceived limits or their fear and uh so that's what canopy watch is about we do all of that we train uh scientists to access trees so that they can work with birds or birds of prey or study any kind of aspect of the biology we train scientists in the united states uh in latin america where all the biodiversity the high biodiversity is in the rainforest but we train arborists we do public climbs to give more people uh, an appreciation for the trees where they live. I live in Boise, Idaho. It's called the city of trees. And, you know, sometimes people treat trees like a nuisance. You know, oh, we've got a leaf problem. We've got a root problem. We've got a needle problem. Or they ignore trees. They, they live around trees all the time without realizing, man, if we cut down all the trees in this city, it would just be an ugly desert. But when you take people to the top of a tree 
they come down and say, wow, that really changed my perspective. Wow, I saw things differently, you know? And I've had people say things like, I'm a better person than when I came to this crime. It made me a better person. I've had really people, I've had people say that. And that motivates me to do more of it. And this is just uh, being able to share this podcast is one more way that we can reach more people and get more people involved. Yeah, that in a nutshell is Canopy Watch. Awesome. Yeah, it's so important to get people into trees. We were just driving around the other day after the end of a job, and uh, my boss was telling me he did a consultation. Some people wanted to remove these big, beautiful firs, and it's like South Eugene where it's just all fir trees, right? And I think he kind of talked them out of it. And as we drove by, we saw these other smaller trees were tagged, not those ones. So, And it made me think, and I even said this to him, people may not realize the reason they want to move into that neighborhood is because of the trees, you know, it's something that's just in the back, like not even in the back of their mind, I guess they don't really think about it. And I was kind of the same way. Trees were completely static to me, just like green things. Yeah. Until I became an arborist and started climbing them. And now it just changed my whole perspective on everything. Like, um, yeah. And pros like you guys work in trees every day. And you have this beautiful relationship with trees that is that is based on your experience, your daily experience and this deep experience. The more people that we can get into trees, the more they can share that experience too. And then we can speak the similar language. Yeah. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's it's a really powerful thing about when you climb a tree, how it how it affects your mind, you know, how you start thinking different. And I think a lot of it is kind of touching on what you were saying a minute ago is you're really facing fears and you're challenging yourself in ways that you can't really replicate in another situation. You know, it's one thing to, you know, to uh, assume that, you know, oh, I'll be fine if I was 100 feet off the ground. But when you're actually 100, you know, working your way up there and you're you're (laughs) hanging out in space, there's no there's there's no lying to yourself. There's no lying to anybody else. You're going to be forced to deal with those emotions that come up. And and I tell you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say that changes somebody when you when you're forced to deal with truth like that, you know, that can change somebody's mind state. There's a lot of things you can deny, but you can't deny gravity. And when you've got, you know, 30 or 50 or 100 feet of gravity between you and the ground, stuff gets real. And, you know, you're really intensely aware of the height. And then it, it, it focuses that intensity on your movements mm-hmm. until time slows down. It focuses your intensity on the tree. And you start to really look at that tree more closely because... You're not just passing by it. You're not walking by on the sidewalk. You're not driving by in a car. You are attached to the tree physically by a rope. And when you're hanging from that rope and you're, and you're pushing through your fear, I think it attaches you to the tree mentally and emotionally. And that's what I want. Yeah. And I see it when I do, when I do public tree climbs, normally the, the group size is uh, six people. That's pretty normal. And I see it every single time. There's six people standing around a tree. The tree has a bunch of ropes hanging from it. And they're looking at each other and they're looking at the ground. And there's this blank kind of expression on their faces that is confusion. It's self-doubt. It's, you know, it's intrigue. They don't know what's going to happen. They're not sure if they can do it. They're not sure if they, if they trust the ropes or me. 
And then I get them into the tree and there's laughter and people are mm-hmm. shouting, you know, and they come down and they say, that was way better than I ever thought it was going to be. Yeah. Well, awesome. I had a guy, I had a guy bring his wife on, it was for her birthday and she was so mad at him. He didn't tell her what they were going to do. <laughs> he brought her to a public tree climb and she just looked grouchy. But when she got in at the top of the tree and she was hanging on the ropes and I have cowbells up there, people ring the cowbells, it <laughs> transforms their emotions. Yeah. And then she's laughing and and I said, Seth is the man. And she goes, well, he wasn't when we got here, but he is now. <laughs> he came around. That's Happy birthday. <laughs> That's so cool. It's interesting, too, because when I first started climbing, I would have people setting my lines for me just to see if I, it was something I was comfortable with, you know. And I, I never doubted that, you know, the tie-in point wasn't safe or, like, the gear I was using wasn't up to the standard. And then, you know, once once it gets to the transition period of, like, you're doing it, someone else is doing that for you, and then you have to be the person to set your own lines and use your own gear and do your own thing, that's when it kind of becomes a little suspicious in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, I don't know. Like, I think I can climb on that. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so the training aspect of Canopy Watch is also, I- I'm interested to hear more about what that looks like and and how people use that and and what the feedback from your program is in terms of the training. Yeah, you know, the the theme that unites all of our activities is that I try and reach and see into people's hearts. And that's something I really learned from my good friend James Luce. He had a way of seeing into people's hearts and knowing what motivated them and, and what their perceived limits were, and then finding ways to coax them and coach them to exceed their limits. Mm-hmm. When I, so when I'm doing a public tree climb, I want to get into people's hearts. I want them to be fully emotionally invested in the climb and in the tree. When I'm training scientists, it's the same thing. There's always a limited amount of time and I have to get people to believe in the activity and believe in their ability. And I really have to push into people's emotions. Mm-hmm. So for the last three years, I trained some graduate students and professors from a university in Utah. And they needed to study raptor nests and they didn't have the techniques to get into trees safely and access all parts of a tree, whether it's a nest on the end of a branch or a sketchy little um, lodgepole pine that's like too skinny and has lots of dead branches. <laughs> and, and it's always the same. I get the same result after two to three days of, of training scientists, right? Who are supposed to be objective and who are supposed to, you know, take things on a mental basis. The emotional connection is clear. Uh, This one woman professor, she said, I had high expectations at the beginning and you exceeded my expectations. That's what I like to hear. Oh yeah. That's Um, a compliment. And so uh, two more like uh, training stories. Uh, One or one or two weekends ago, two weekends ago, um, I have a friend named Rob Miller 
who studies northern goshawks here at Boise State University. He's an employee of the Intermountain Bird Observatory, and Rob has a project studying goshawks in southern Idaho. Goshawks are the the apex avian predator of their ecosystem. They are at the top of their food chain, and Rob studies them as sentinels of ecosystem health, and he studies their populations to see how they're doing, what they're eating, how many young are reproduced from year to year. Well, Rob had a health challenge this year, and he couldn't supervise the students in his care. And we had, I think it was 10, maybe nine students that went on this field trip. And we trained them in every kind of, every aspect of goshawk biology and research, how to catch adults that are free flying, how to climb into a nest tree and get the young on the ground, how to take a blood sample so you can study their genetics and their DNA and how, how to put uh, bands on the birds so you can identify them. Students finished that weekend of goshawk work on a natural high. They are so stoked. When you are running around in the forest, uh, studying this magnificent, really beautifully colored bird, they're kind of a battleship gray. The adults have bright red eyes, this really, really fierce look. And they, they deserve a fierce look because goshawks, let's just say they don't take shit from anybody. They <laughs> take names and kick butt all over the place. They should be called boss hawks. Boss hawks. Boss I never thought of that one. That's a new one, Becca. Let's call them boss hawks. <laughs> boss hawks. You know, and I, and I just posted that on uh, Instagram today that, you know, Female goshawks have unbridled fury, and they attack biologists with a fistful of razor blades. Oh, yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty true. <laughs> wow. It's pretty true. But then the other thing that, that Canopy Watch does that um, really is our crowning event, uh, this will be our fifth year of doing mm. international climber trainings for biologists from Latin America. Latin America is where all the biodiversity bio is at, and mm -hmm. in the tropical rainforest, the it's estimated that 40 to 50 percent of the biodiversity in that forest is in the canopy. Mm -hmm. If you ever go into one of those forests, you know you're you're instantly overwhelmed. On your first visit to a forest, there are sounds and sights and smells and colors and birds flying around, and you're standing on the ground, and the forest goes up 130 or 150 feet. And it is so painfully obvious that everything is out of reach and out of sight. So we go down to Latin America every year on grants and donations and train 10 to 20 biologists so that they can work independently in the forests where they live without depending on outsiders, North Americans, Europeans uh, to come down and, and provide equipment or money. We give them the training at about one sixteenth of what it would normally, uh, an event like that would normally cost. Uh, they get five days of training, and we it's 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 a training in the in the vocabulary sense of the word because we're teaching them skills, we're teaching them about equipment, we're teaching them how to get into and out of trees safely, to inspect the equipment, inspect the tree, you know, and and maintain this high level of safety. But we change their lives because after five days with us, they're like, I never thought I could do that. I never thought I was going to have that chance. They say things like, I've been dreaming. This has been my lifelong dream of working in the 
canopy of the rainforest and I never had the technical support. I never had the moral support. I never had the equipment. We really get to them and uh, it gets to me too. <laughs> but um, it's great when you're working with uh, 20 students from, uh, let's say, Honduras, El Salvador, Argentina, Colombia, Peru, all the Ecuador, all these countries. It's not just a training group. By the end of the week, it's a tree family. Aww. Oh, yeah. That sounds amazing. Yeah. I, I'm Right now, I'm just thinking, how do I get him on board? I want to be down there in the uh, rainforest canopy climbing trees with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We need trainers. Uh, we, need, we need trainers, uh, and they need to be bilingual is kind of the catch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, and be willing to take about two weeks out of their lives for there's no pay involved but the compensation is better than money for sure exactly. yeah yeah david yeah. are these uh scientists that you take to these places are they already trained in rigging and climbing or is that something that they learn when they get there you know it's normal to have maybe one out of ten or one or two out of 20 with some rope, uh, like rock climbing experience. Mm -hmm. But normally, most of them have no prior experience with ropes whatsoever. You have to start from scratch. We start from total scratch. From the, the first day, they have to learn the names of the equipment, what each piece of equipment is, is for. And we have to teach them the difference between tree climbing equipment and methods and rock climbing equipment and methods, because in most of their countries you can buy rock climbing harnesses and ropes and carabiners. And we don't want them to make the mistake of using that equipment for the techniques that we teach them. Mm -hmm. So they start from zero knowledge, but last year and last year being 2019. So two years ago now, not mm -hmm. 2020 is, exempt from reality let's just ignore that one <laughs> so last year being 2019 um we had, we had students at the end of the course they had a we like to do obstacle courses and challenges by the last day cool we had students who could climb tree number one traverse over to tree number two and come down tree number two and we're able to reach that level of technicality in five days because it is super intense training it's 10 to 12 hours a day with the top instructors that we can find and because we are constantly like i say finding ways to get into their hearts and and motivate them at that super emotional level to believe in themselves believe in the equipment and believe in the methods fantastic that's awesome that's what uh what are the what are the methods you're teaching them? Like the techniques, I guess, when I climbed with you, I think you were on a rope wrench with like a rope walker system. Like, are you teaching them modern techniques or is it like go up on ascenders and, you know, descend on a gree or something like that? We teach them the most modern techniques. Uh, we teach them stationary rope systems with a rope wrench. And then we teach them a moving rope system Primarily for lanyards, but also for mm -hmm. climbing shorter trees. And the reason that we climb, there's these are the reasons why we climb on a rope wrench. I love the rope wrench, man. I mean, I love zigzags and, and all these other mechanical devices, but I love a rope wrench. Um, one, because it's midline attachable. But we want them to know 
how to listen in five days. You can't teach a lot. Yeah. You yeah. can't teach a lot of skills and a lot of tools and a lot of knots. We give them the minimal amount of knots. All right. I'm on my porch and here comes <laughs> on their way to the podcast. <laughs> they heard tree thinking was happening on Madison Avenue. And they're like, Hey, man, we don't want to miss tree thinking. Yeah. It happens. <laughs> it, it happens now and then. You guys are used to it by now. Uh, we teach them the rope wrench because they need to have total canopy access. They need to be able to get out on branch tips to sample epiphytes, you know, the plants that grow on top of other plants. Mm -hmm. they, they need to be all over that tree crown safely. And we also, in tropical forests, those trees have all kinds of critters living in them. And storms can blow in really fast. We want them to be able to get out of a tree really fast in a safe way. So we, we teach them on rope wrenches because they can, on anything up to 100 feet, I'm satisfied if they climb in and out on a rope wrench. They don't have to change their equipment at all. Yeah. And then we teach the moving rope system so they can have a lanyard and, and do safe and secure uh, positioning, you know, mm -hmm. uh, which gets them to triangulate with a tree crown and a branch and and be able to move all over the freaking place and between trees, like I say. Check out all those epiphytes. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, there's stuff that grows in the epiphytes. There's mosquitoes oh, and yeah. frogs and... Yeah, there oh, uh, are frogs. Yeah, frogs living in the tank for meliads. Things that... You, you see things... I spent... I spent several years... Gosh, I don't like to talk about myself, but I, I spent some years, okay, in the tops of trees in the rainforest, and you see things up there in the tops of trees that you don't see on the ground, weird lizards and ants and birds and, and plants and interactions between all of those things that only happen in the top of the rainforest. Yeah. They don't, those species, organisms uh, and interactions and ecology don't occur at ground level. They don't occur even within eyesight of the ground level. And when you're in the top of a tree, it's a whole new world, a whole new world. Yeah, I think that goes back to what you were saying earlier about uh, a big part is getting people up into the tree as opposed to just seeing a tree or learning about a tree. Because when you're yep. up in a tree, you're in a whole different environment. And we identify ourselves by the environment we're in. So if you get up into a tree mm. and you start identifying yourself as a tree climber, as yep. someone that enjoys this space, then you're going to be a lot more likely to advocate for that space and to, Absolutely. Know, to share that knowledge. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That, you, you nailed it. You nailed it. We're growing. I call it growing the community of tree evangelists, people who will speak out on behalf <laughs> of trees and create. These biologists are creating new knowledge. They go to the tops of the trees and learn things that other people don't know. And when they learn that and share it, they're building knowledge that did not exist before. And, as a scientist, that's pretty cool. Is there a certain species or event that happens between species that has that you've witnessed be discovered by yourself or a scientist that you've been on a climb with before? Um, I can't. Let's see. I can't say that I've discovered any of those interactions, but I'll, I'll just tell you a neat little story going back. This would be 2006 when I was doing fieldwork for my doctorate degree. And I was in Honduras in a national park called Pico Bonito. 
Parque Nacional Pico Bonito. And there's this bird called um, the green shrike vireo. People can look that one up. It's, it's a bird that lives in the very, very tip tops of the trees. They are super noisy. You hear them all the time. In a year and a half studying trees and uh, studying canopy birds in that forest, I tried all the time to see a green shrike vireo from the ground, and I never saw one from the ground. Even though they're noisy and you know where to look, I could never see one. And then, and because they live in the top of the forest, even to this day, no one has ever seen the nest of a green shrike vireo or written the description and published it in a scientific journal. If you go look at the field guides for tropical birds, there's no description of the nest. One day I was sitting in this tree, I was about 130 feet, and this, this female vireo kept flying into a tangle of leaves and foliage, and she had insects and spiders. When a bird's got spiders in its bill, it's feeding nestlings. It's automatic. Mm-hmm. And that, that vireo was only about 20 feet away from me. And I wanted to climb into the top of that tree and, and see what her nest looked like, but I couldn't see the top of that tree from the ground. And I didn't know how to climb a tree that I couldn't see the top of that tree. And at that time, I was climbing on jumars, literally the yellow jumars. That's how I would climb to the tops of trees. I did not know at that time that there were techniques to just allow you to throw a rope 20 feet, not that far, and just slide over there. And it was that very day, it was that, I have a photo of that bird with her spiders when this light bulb came on in my head and I thought, there must be something about tree climbing that I don't know because there's got to be a way to get over there. And when I came back from Honduras at the end of my field work, I started looking up arborists because I thought, these guys know how to climb trees. I've got to learn how to climb from an arborist. And that's when I started learning like the true advanced methods for climbing trees. That's awesome. And so I was close, Becca, close to making a discovery, but I was like 20 feet away and didn't know how to oh, go. Oh, no. <laughs> I, uh, just so you know, I Googled that bird after you had mentioned it, and it's so cute. <laughs> They're cute. They're I green might... with a little blue crest. Yeah, and a little yellow throat. I'm going to cry. <laughs> and a little yellow throat. Yeah, yeah they are they're cuties. They're such cuties. So uh, was Pico Benito, was that when you first lived over there or was that when you moved there later with your family yeah i've had a few too many adventures in honduras that are you know to be good for you (laughs) i started okay okay here's the story i went to the peace corps in 1991 and i spent two and a half years in the peace corps and i went back later to get a master's degree studying uh, birds of prey in the top of the rainforest. And then I went back to do my field work for a doctorate degree. But the cool part about this story is, is what matters because uh, Andrew and Jamie participated in a special moment without even knowing it. I landed in Honduras for the first time on June 5th, 1991. And for many years, I found it was a totally by accident, without planning, without realizing it, I found myself in really excellent adventures on June 5th. You know, one time I was like climbing a mountain in Oregon and I thought, oh yeah, today's June 5th. And then bing, June 5th, that's when I first went to the Peace Corps. That's the first day I landed in in a tropical country and and had that experience. Um, We climbed that tree together in Oregon on June 5th. Oh, nice. Full circle. Or maybe the middle of a a constant figure eight. 
It's a, I call it a spiral. My life seems to go in these spirals, and it just returns to the same point over and over. We'll have to and like... here I was on June 5th climbing the tallest tree of my life with amazing people. Wow. And, and, and that... then that spirals around, and now we're doing a podcast. And <laughs> that was also the first day my daughter uh, climbed an old growth tree. Oh, nice. yeah. Melina came with us. So cool. Yep. She yeah. was fun. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, going back to earlier in the conversation, talking about pushing emotional limits and, yeah. uh, you know, kind of fighting through. And and that's a big part of it also is that I think the power of tree climbing comes from the fear. And then yep. one of the most primal things for humans is when you have fear and then you push through it and you achieve accomplishment. Yep. You turn, you know, yeah. that, that turns into yeah. a really empower, you know, that'll change the way you look at yourself. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking yes. about the way you look at yourself, very few things are as powerful as that, you know? So you're, yes. you're talking about transformation through tree climbing. I mean, that that's right there. You know, if you can kind of feel that fear, but there's something about trees where you want to make it to the canopy or you set these goals, you want to get up into the tree. So you're accomplishing goals and then you've accomplished these goals and you're in this raw space because you've just felt these emotions. You've accomplished the goals and you've redefined who you are. Mm-hmm. And, and you have to learn a sense of coolness or calmness because when you're, when you're way on the top of a tree, there's no room for panic or hysteria. You know, you, if you, you realize that you're afraid and you want to get back down to the ground. You just got to start problem solving. And, yeah. and it's that coolness that gets you through the next challenge. You know, it could be the next day or the next week. And you're like, I don't know how to do this. I can't do this. And then you think back, you know what? I can do this. It <laughs> happens to me like once a week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got to climb out of bed in the morning. That's the hardest <laughs> climb of oh all. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to make it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. I'm going to mark June 5th as a time for adventure. Like, yeah. go do something on June 5th. Yeah. It's a national holiday now. <laughs> <laughs> it could be an international national holiday. National Bravery Day. A new, yeah. a new Arbor holiday. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for all the tree people out there. I love that. Yeah. Super. Thanks. A, a day of accomplishment, taking on adventure. Yeah. How did you get into birds? Like, how did you find that you were interested in, in birds? Well, I was a student at Humboldt State University in the wildlife management program, trying to figure out who I was and what I wanted to do in life. And when you're a wildlife major, you can study fur bears, you can study non-game, you can study birds, waterfowl. And I realized that birds were everywhere. It became a a pastime to go birding and bird watching. Uh, And then when you learn the birds, the birds teach you about the ecosystem because they're little little indicators. Oh, I must be in this type of a habitat because, you know, there's a house wren here or there's a marsh wren here. Um, and I just, I started loving birds more and more and more. Then I went to the Peace Corps and that's just tropical birds are birds on steroids. When you have <laughs> every color that you've ever imagined, you know, flying around in the forest. And sometimes half of those colors are in, in one single bird. Wow. You know, I mean, there are birds that can be five or six bright green, purple, blue colors. Uh, then it, it it's like a drug. It goes into your vein and it never Never. It's like malaria. It never goes away. (laughs) (laughs) 
<clears throat> yeah, and then uh, and then uh, let's see. In 1993, I went to this really remote corner of Honduras called the Rio Platano Biosphere Reserve, the Rio Platano, and it's kind of like the little Amazon of Central America. You to get there, you have to travel in dugout canoes, and then the dugout canoes get to a point where you have to get into smaller dugout canoes because the river's too shallow and small. And these things are going up rapids and you have uh, the native people there, the Petch and Mosquito Indians are pushing your dugout canoe up rapids with poles. I fell in love with the place. It was love at first sight. And I said, I said when I was there, you know, I want to come back and I'm going to climb the tallest trees and study birds. I mean, it's like the dumbest thing that, you know, a young person in the Peace Corps could ever imagine. Yeah, I think I'll come back and climb the tallest trees and study birds. Blah. <laughs> and then I and then I actually did it. You know, I right. I actually made it come true. But it was it was it it was a hard dream to make into a reality. But it did change me forever. What what do you think uh, made that happen? You know, because that's one of those things. Uh, you hear a million people come up with good ideas or you know want to do something. What what about that time for you uh, changed it from a dream to a reality? That's a super good question and a lesson I'd like to learn or share, you know, with all the tree thinkers. Um, when I went into the Peace Corps, I kind of had a mentality that certain goals are achievable and certain goals are unachievable. And when you're new to a tropical country, a poor country, the list of unachievable things is really long and the list of achievable things is really short. You know, and I kept wanting to do this and that and I couldn't do it. And I and I it finally realized that, you know what, that's the wrong way to go about life. The right way to go about life is to say, this is what I want to do. How am I going to get there? I had people tell me like that idea that I was going to go back to this, this uh, Rio Platano Biosphere Reserve and study birds in the top of the rainforest. I had people tell me not to do it. They said, you know, that's, that's too hard. It's too difficult. You know, your chance of failure is too high. And I said, I'm, I'm going to do this thing. I, I just, I got to. And it, it was a long, long series of problem solving and challenges. And it only happened because I never stopped believing. So if you want something bad enough, you got to believe it hard enough and, you know, don't take no for an answer. And sometimes you hear no nine times and then on the 10th time you make something happen. Nice. I, I like that. What I'm hearing is uh, kind of don't listen to the people that are doubters. Don't, you know, people that Including are Including yourself. Yeah, yeah definitely. That's Some, a big one. Sometimes you're the biggest doubter. Yeah. You know what I mean? But if yeah. you want something enough, you don't look at... Uh, things in the way as obstacles that can't be overcome as much as problems where you just haven't figured out the solution yet. Mm, that's well said. I adopted a saying that I lived on for about three years. It's going to sound pretty corny, but it, it actually did. Uh, I, I think it did get me through it. I kept saying to myself, I will not be denied. Nice. You know, someone would say no, and I'd say, I will not be denied. Or I didn't get the grant, you know, and I'd say, I will not be denied. I will not be denied. <laughs> the, funny, the funny thing about it is I had to raise all the money to do this trip. There was no money in it. Um, my advisor at Boise State University didn't have any money for it. I had, to I had to write grants to different foundations and zoos and stuff and get the money. And, uh, and I got 
you know, a donation from Kelty Corporation. It's like the first gear donation I ever got. There was a bunch of backpacks and two tents. Um, I raised enough money to go down to Honduras, and I bought an airplane ticket and left, but I did not have enough money to get back. <laughs> <laughs> Turned out to be a good thing, it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and I just went down on faith. Uh, and while I was down there, two of the grants that I had submitted came through and then I came home and I finished the project. That's fantastic. Yeah. Was there something about being there you think that, uh, kind of made, made the dream a little more possible? I know for, for me, when I was in my early twenties, I went and traveled in Costa Rica for a little while and I was nowhere near as remote as you are. From what what you're saying, I didn't have to take any dugout canoes anywhere. You know, there was chicken buses that would take me wherever I wanted to go. The chicken buses, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it made me realize how fortunate I was when I'm in Eugene, how many resources I have, and how many yeah. doors are open for me here. You oh know, yeah. Uh, in 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 some of the simplest ways that I took for granted before, you know, and just conversations. I was really into into surfing. And talking to some of some friends that I made that were uh, starting a surf school there, and they were like, "You need yeah. to, you you should start a, you know." They were like, "You need to start a surf school in Oregon." They're like, "It <laughs> like you're in the United States. Everything comes easier in the United States." And I'm sitting there thinking, like, "Dude, you're in Tamarindo. Yeah. You're like in this surf mecca, like yeah, you know." But how much of that is mind mind space? You know what I mean? Like just like, you know what I see. This is it's easy to be the the armchair quarterback or the Monday morning quarterback, but I believe that I see it a lot uh, in our country where you say like there is a lot of opportunity and I and I realize yes there are limits to the opportunity, but sometimes uh, if you want to believe strongly enough in impossible, it's easy to find impossible. <laughs> <laughs> That's the truth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Was what brought you to South America the the biodiversity of the region? I was, I don't think, uh, I, I knew for sure, not having been there, you don't know what it's going to be like. You can't really paint an experience that complex that you haven't had. But uh, I wanted to speak Spanish. I wanted to live in, yeah, in a tropical green muggy country and eat the food mm-hmm. and uh, I did want to see all of the biodiversity I was as a wildlife major I was a fanatic for wild places and things and I just wanted to see that awesome yeah how did you first learn to access the canopy Ooh, okay the hard way <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um when I was a graduate student at Boise State University, I had a friend who had been climbing in the rainforest, and he took me out with some spurs and a flip line. I'm going to date myself. The flip line was a wire core flip line with a hemp, like, double raid wrap around it, uh-huh. a triple braid wrap around it. And he taught me how to climb a cottonwood tree, and I climbed a total of maybe three times, maybe four times before going down to the rainforest. And then I was climbing trees on spurs, which is, we all know now is a totally worse way to climb trees. But if you, if you don't know about tropical hardwood, some of those trees are like cement. 
Oh, yeah. They're like cement with a thin little, like, paper-thin bark on it. And I was trying to spur up these trees, and the spurs barely even went into the tree. Uh-huh. Um, and then, also not knowing what the limits of spurs were, I was actually trying to go out on limbs, you know, like branch walking on with a flip line. No, no lanyard or anything else, a flip line and spurs. It was... Oh, wow. It was beyond dumb. I made a lot of mistakes, um, and and I survived a lot of mistakes, and... I won't say I had any close calls, but I had some things that really could have gone seriously bad. Mm-hmm. Um, the next year I went down there, I had learned how to set lines in the top of, of these tall trees. And it changed my game because then I could put a rope over the tree uh, and climb the rope. Even then I was climbing with Jumars, so there were a lot of things that I didn't know. Um, and I was afraid to switch from Jumars, you know, from a handheld ascender texas system into a figure eight to get out of the tree that scared me oh yeah so if i had if anything had gone seriously bad it would have been even seriously worse uh but that's how i learned how to to climb trees yeah uh was one mistake at a time but it's also what motivates me to go back now to tropical countries in latin america and teach the next generation of of scientists, tree climbers, because I learned from my mistakes and they can learn from my mistakes. They don't have to make their own mistakes. They can learn from mine. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I can tell them, you know, this is the best way to get into the tree and get out of the tree. And this is how you stay safe when you're up there. And this is how you balance. These are, you know, the number one mistakes that I learned the hard way. Don't do that. Um, and be safe and have fun and be productive and efficient. And it's really the thing that motivates me now is, I want to make it easier for them and I don't want anyone to get hurt. I, I did get hurt once and I, I did have some, I had some close calls. Um, yeah. Do you feel uh, comfortable telling, telling us any of your close calls or any of those stories? I've, I think we've all told stories like that on here where, uh, we've had things go wrong and I see, I think there's a lot of value in sharing those stories in hopes that okay. people can learn from them. You know what they say, a smart person learns from their mistakes, but a wise person learns from other people's mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'm a dumb person, so I'm going to help the wise. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, so I'll tell a story. One time I was standing in the top of a tree and it had a kind of a natural, like, trifurcation of branches and trunk. Uh, and it had rained really early that morning, like one or two hours before I got to the tree. So everything was slippery. And I was standing on the branch and I had to pull my entire rope up the tree. And I thought, you know, I can stand on this branch. I won't slip, right? I I didn't have a lanyard, so I just used slings to tie myself into the tree. Well, I tied slings on one sling on my left and one on my right. And they went to the bridge. And I thought, this is no problem. I can handle this. I'll stand on these branches and I'll pull my rope over. And I had always imagined what falling out of a tree would be like. I thought, it'd be slow motion and I'll be, I'll be going down to the branches and I'll grab one and save myself and pull myself up and everything will be okay. With, before I even realized I was falling, I was sitting in my slings. Yeah. Uh, you know, resting in my harness. There was never a sensation of falling. I had just fallen and the slings had caught me. It happened that fast. Yeah. So, you know, the moral of the story is don't get cocky and don't don't take your chances. But the thing that really got me through a lot of this tree climbing, because I was pretty much self-taught, 
Um, I call it the triple check. <laughs> you may have heard of a double check, and it's hard to explain uh, over the radio. The best way to explain it is in a tree. But I always triple check what I was doing. So let's say I'm in the top of a tree. I'm connected to my rope, and I'm going to throw a swing over a branch, and I'm going to have to disconnect from the rope and go to the swing. My triple check process is, to imagine the whole scenario before I do it and ask myself, is that for sure what you want to do? If you do this thing, what is going to happen? Is it going to work the way you want? And then I would put the sling over the branch. I would check everything before disconnecting. And I would say, okay, I would, I mean, I'd be speaking to myself out loud. The sling is over the branch. Is it over the branch? Yes, it is. Is it girth hitched? Yes, it is. Is it through the carabiner? Yes. The, the sling is through the carabiner and is the carabiner on my harness. Yes, it is. Okay, now I'm going to disconnect the rope. My hand is on the rope, on the carabiner that's attaching to the rope. Is it? Yes, it is. <laughs> now I'm going to disconnect the carabiner from the rope, you know, and it was that slow, methodical, just thinking that there's no room for mistakes. I mean, it was like two days from a, hosp a bad hospital, like a bad Honduran hospital, the first day being in dugout canoes and the second day being in an airplane. Oh, you know, wow. and my friends would ask me, hey, what's your emergency plan? And my emergency plan was have no emergencies. Yeah, right. that's a really good emergency plan. <laughs> that's a good one. It, it's funny because I always, whenever I'm in a tree and uh, it's the end of the day or, you know, I'm just, it's been a hot day all day and I'm exhausted. I'd, I, in my head, I'd always call it a triple check and I've taught it that way to a lot of people also. When you hit that point where you're running on fumes, triple check everything. And I would do yeah. the same thing where I'd vocalize. If I like moved my lanyard around something, I'd move my lanyard, clip it in. And then I'd check and I go like from one hip D I go, I'd touch it and be like, check. And then touch where I was around yep. to make sure it's secure and check. And then yep. check the other lanyard. And I just do that three times because when you're, you know, when you anybody who's climbed trees a lot has got to that point where they're pumped out or they're tired, you know, you yeah. just can't be fresh all day. Mm -hmm. and, nope. and so when you start feeling that you have to take it to the next level because some of the best climbers have hurt themselves because they yep. thought they were the best climbers, yeah. you yep. know? And so it's so important to, to kind of be humble within that moment. And, uh, yep. yeah, it, that triple check is, is a real deal. I appreciate too, personally, the step where you imagine what you're going to do before you make a movement. Yeah. Because I'm like, I have such like a, a like puppy dog thing in my brain where I'm just like, I got to get over to that limb. And then I'm like, I'll make a swing, and I do it, and then I get there, and I'm like, okay, now what am I going to clip into? <laughs> <laughs> Instead of like being like, do I have something to clip into once I'm over there? Then I'm just sitting there with my arm around the, yeah, you know, just like oh. yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah it's good been to, there. to think it through before you make a move, well, so that you don't exhaust yourself and look like a total asshole. And I can remember <laughs> that exact scenario where I jumped over. And grab something, and my lanyard was hanging down. And so I was grabbing on with one arm and couldn't use it. And I'm trying to like whip this lanyard, like move it up to me. And it just in my head is like, why didn't you just stop and like clip that on your harness first? Yeah. You know, because yeah. then you just reach down to your harness, unclip, and do it. Instead, I'm like trying to get like 10 feet down this rope to the carabiner that's dangling there that mm -hmm. I need in my hand. So, same kind yeah. of idea, you know, it's such real. a no brainer. Um, yeah. I've, you you do a lot of climbing and training with arborists, you know, and you and with scientists. And one yep. of the things I 
I think there's a lot of value in is cross training between kind of professions and industries. Cause yeah. a lot of times you're in your own little ecosystem and bubble and you can make your own developments here and they can make their e own developments there. Can you think of any uh, crossover or like tricks that scientists have taught arborists or arborists have taught scientists uh, that you could share anybody listening and learning? Well, one, one area where scientists need to learn from arborists is most scientists, their, their mental visual concept of tree climbing is two handheld ascenders and either a tree frog or a Texas system. And I go to conferences, I talk with people, and I, uh, you know, I, I find, hey, you work in the, you work in, in trees, huh? So how do you climb? You know, I kind of climb too. You know, you want to talk about tree climbing? And they're like, oh yeah, I know all about tree climbing. I've got Jumars, and I Jumar up a tree. <laughs> and like, you know, there are there are other ways to climb a tree. Oh, yeah, I, I climb with Jumars, and and they don't they don't get past that point. Uh, and and so learning, you know. It wasn't until I met arborists and started to climb with arborists that I became, I think, a real tree climber. Um, and I guess the secret ingredient in that sauce is self-awareness and humility and being able to say, there are things that I don't know. What might they be? And if someone tells you, uh, guess what? There might be something you don't know. Listen to that person. Maybe they're right. <laughs> maybe they're wrong and maybe they're right. So from uh, in the direction of arborists, the scientists, um, that's a good one. I'm not so sure about the direction of scientists to arborists. I do like to say sometimes, if you want to climb like a scientist, learn from a scientist. Sometimes scientific <laughs> climbing is not the same as, as arboriculture or arborist climbing. It, things differ in subtle ways. But it's not only that. It's, uh you know, scientists' minds work a little differently. They're just wired differently. They communicate differently. They yeah. they speak differently. And knowing how to speak tree talk to a scientist is kind of where my niche in Canopy Watch is. Canopy Watch has a super unique niche because, you know, I'm a PhD-level scientist who has university-level teaching experience. Um, I have done arboricultural work. I'm a you know, I don't know. I don't want to say I'm a great tree climber, but I'm pretty darn good, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I know a few things. And and so, and, and I speak Spanish and I have international development experience. Yeah. I don't know anybody else who has that yeah, exactly. intersection of talents. And that's what makes Canopy Watch this unique space. And able to like go to an arborist competition and hang out with the, with the arborists or go to... Um, you know, a tree jamboree and mm -hmm. hang out with the arborists and then go talk with the scientists and then train these young people in Latin America who don't speak English. I can do those things. I really, and it, it makes my life richer and I want to make, I want to enrich the lives of other people. That's awesome. I really like the way that you just said climbing like a scientist because it, um, it kind of makes me think sometimes, especially when I was pretty new to, to working in trees, I would be like, oh, no, I knocked that moss off. Yeah. And it's true. Oh, it's that's like, the yeah, one. Yeah, it, like, breaks my heart, you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, oh, There's man. There's a lesson that I want to share. Becca, you got it. I, and I was thinking about this yesterday in prep for today, and I forgot. Mm -hmm. So here's a lesson for any person who aspires to climb big old trees. Maybe everyone knows this. Maybe they don't. So let me just 
put it out there. Um, it takes a tree many hundreds of years, many hundreds of years to adapt the qualities of an ancient tree. Mm-hmm. The, the structures that are in that tree, the broken limbs, all of those mosses and lichens. And when I say hundreds of years, it might take three to 500 years for a tree to develop the characteristics of an old tree. And it may take a thousand years or 2000 years for a forest to develop the characteristics of an old forest. Mm. And I want anyone who aspires to climb a big old tree, you know, I'm, I'm very careful. I don't actually encourage that publicly because uh, I know how easy it is to damage those unique qualities of those old trees. That branch that's in your way because it's dead may be the place where the flying squirrels perch every night when they're flying from that tree to the next tree and you don't know it and you just busted it off. That's a great point. That lichen that you just kicked off that tree may be 300 years old. Yeah. But it's so fragile. All that moss and lichen is so fragile and you're, you know, yeah. So you might accidentally knock it off and then. Yeah, go slow and worship those trees. Exactly. There's, we have taken out 90% of the old growth forests in the Pacific Northwest. There's only 3% left. And a lot of those trees are in national parks. You know, there are very few old trees that people have access to to climb. Yeah. And it would be easy to start a wave of, you know, like a new hobby or something and just wreck the tops of those old trees. I would really be sad to see that. Yeah. And it, it's a hard thing. Cause I don't think you can stop people if they want to climb, you know, the people are going to do what they want. They'll do gorilla climbs if they want to get up there and whatnot. But I think there's a lot of wisdom. And if you are going to do that, try to climb kind of with that single rope technique where you're climbing on the rope where a lot of arborists they'll climb the tree because you know they're trying to get out to this pot or get out to that spot but try to kind of tailor your climbing techniques in a way that is doing the minimal damage you know going up the rope and not kicking the moss off and you know enjoy the surroundings and the environment for what it is it's not a jungle gym you're more a tourist in this different spot you know maybe yeah it's it's a cathedral for me, and I just yeah. want to go in and, mm-hmm. and be a silent observer and, and kind of rejoice in the majesty of it all. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny because I, I love the way Deadwood looks. And there's been a ton of trees where I've been paid to clean all the Deadwood out because people like, yep. <laughs> like to have that beautiful, pristine, like, you know, I'm a— Clean. Yeah. Clean. Yeah, I'm a clean. They want their tree. house clean. They want their tree clean. It's sterile. They want yeah. their hair yeah, clean yeah. and their car clean and their tree clean. Yeah, but that's not reality. <laughs> you yeah. know, reality is like yeah. the cool dead wood that feeds the epiphyte, or you know, like yeah. a birdhouse and a major totally. lead that you know. And how it's all connected. It's all part of the same organism. It's funny the same the same birds that they put the bird feeders out for. They want to cut the dead wood out of the tree. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. Like... <laughs> yeah, yeah. And That's it it's kind of a reoccurring theme on this show. But we are you know part of our job as tree people are to speak for the trees because they can't yeah. speak for themselves. And that's yeah. another way you can think about it when you're trying to talk to a client about the tree in their backyard. If they really love that tree and that wildlife in the backyard, it's good to remind them that that deadwood has a good purpose. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. you know, an essential purpose, you know, without essential purpose, essential purpose. Yeah. Without the critters that lit, you know, that need that deadwood and need that habitat. It's not the same thing, you know, in in Boise where I live, there are a few neighborhoods that are a hundred years old and they have a hundred year old trees. And a lot of those trees maintain certain qualities, you know, because they are old and, it's really obvious when I go there on a spring morning that those neighborhoods have a really rich bird life that does not exist in the rest of the city. Yeah. And it's like, it's, it's an urban forest. That's what it is. It's an urban forest and it has urban wildlife. You go to other parts of the city where the neighborhood is 20 years old and all of those birds are missing. That sound is missing. The shade is missing. The wind, the sound of the wind blowing through the trees is missing. You know, the beautiful fall colors are missing. And yeah, so yeah, old trees are important. They give a lot to us. So um, the only people who can take care of them is us. Yep. And and those trees rely on us because in the world yep. we live in, uh, we're the only people, like within the city. Well, I'm not even going to say within the city because in the forest too, like you say, 90, what, 97% of the old growth has been logged. Like in the world, the trees need us to advocate for them to be, to exist. You know, imagine yep. if, imagine if rock climbers, you know, lived in a world where 97% of the rocks had been like hammered down and crumbled. <laughs> We're gone. Yeah. <laughs> you know, That's Louisiana. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the last, you know, those last 3% of rocks would be like sacred things that were protected. Yeah, you know, and and that's how we yep. got to look at the trees too, because it's 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 what they are. What we have, you know, these trees are sacred. Yeah, it comes Thank back you. to getting people into the trees so they can realize this these things. You know. Yeah, yeah. totally. And yes, thank you. Some people might think that's a controversial thing to say. What we're saying, but that's because we've all been in the tree. Yeah, we've experienced <laughs> yeah. it. You know, we've like uh, I don't know if you've listened to any of the podcasts, but you yeah. know. It's it's one of those things where, you know, all of us, be, you know, believe trees are sentient beings. It's just yes. it's just how do you define what a living creature is and a sentient being is just because you don't form thoughts in the exact way we form thoughts doesn't mean that you're not, you know, capable of, uh, you know, perceiving the world around you. You know, yeah, I, I like the the Native American attitude of thanking your food, right? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I am a, I am a hunter and I like to eat, uh, organic meat that is sustainably harvested. And I like to go out and shoot uh, a deer or uh, let's say harvest. I don't, okay. I go out every fall and make my best efforts to harvest a deer or an elk. Mm-hmm. And whenever I do, uh, when I get to that animal, the very first thing I do is I thank that animal. Well, when I'm climbing trees, I like to thank the trees. That tree was, you know, may have been there before I was born. It may be there after I die. It, that tree doesn't have to put up with me. Yeah. Yeah, we're just little and, uh, flash in the pan for that tree. Yeah, and that tree's out there, you know, I sleep in my bed. I take a shower. I eat in my kitchen. That tree is there 365 days a year <laughs> for however many years it's there. 100, 300, oh. 800. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my... Uh... I like to thank the tree. I like Hi, to thank Dad. the tree. <laughs> hey, is that Maria? Yeah, we're recording All right, the, the tree climbing kids. Yeah. Hello, podcast. <laughs> hey. 
Andrew's a great dad. Yeah, uh, I'm just gonna I'm gonna make it public. Andrew's a great dad. Oh, I'm a lucky dad, is what I am. I've got a couple awesome kids. <laughs> But what I was saying is I like to thank the tree. That tree doesn't have to put up with me, and, and it's the right place to be. And, you know, climbing a tree can be this macho experience for some people. Yeah, man, I kicked foot. I was awesome. I did all this stuff. And I'm like, it's not about you, dude. It's about the tree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that goes back to what we were talking about earlier. It's a, If you have a humble attitude and you approach it with that humble spirit, then uh, you're going to fully experience and learn from that experience, you know, where if you come at it from like, a, oh, look at me, I'm going to climb up this tree, and, you, you know, you're kicking yeah. moss mats off on the way up, and, you know, you just get to the top, you know, look at the view and come on down, that's not the same experience. You're not getting, uh, I, in my opinion, you're not getting as much as you could out of that experience. The world is closed to you. Yeah. I mean, if you close the world off, then the world is closed to you. So, yeah, slow down and enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Oh, well, um, I guess, do you have any other stories? You got any stories from the field you want to share? Stories from the field. Any, any, uh, adventures you've been on or climbing experiences or tree related, heck non tree related. If you're just inspired, if you want, if we, if this could be story time with David. (laughs) <laughs> uh, well okay here's a oh here's a tree non-tree story um i you know what happened in the podcast phase in the podcast when i was in living in that in the Rio Platano <laughs> biosphere reserve i had a love affair and i had a love affair with dugout canoes um, <laughs> oh, these, these native people you could take a man who was born and raised in that forest who never went to school who couldn't even write his own name but he could make he could take a tree, uh, a mahogany tree, and fall that tree, and carve it out with hand tools, and make a thirty foot long dugout canoe that could turn on a dime. And that wood gets polished in the bottom from the human feet that stand in it, because you have to push them up the river. Mm-hmm. And I I totally fell in love with dugout canoes, and it's sort of. It's like climbing a tree with ropes creates a bond because you're attached to a tree. Well, pulling a dugout canoe up a river creates a bond between the person and the canoe and the river. You really read the river a different way and you appreciate the currents when you're, when you're taking, you're standing in a tree. It always blew my mind. Like I'm in a hollowed out tree going up this river. And there's this silent beauty to coasting on the water in a dugout canoe that is magic. It is so magic. And um, I, I was inspired to learn how to, to learn how to use these canoes. And at, at the beginning, you know, if I tried to stand in a canoe, it was automatically fall in the water, splash on my face. <laughs> and sometimes I had to cross the river to get from one side to the other. And I'd have to call these little kids, you know, like a seven-year-old girl would paddle me across the river and I'd be hanging on to the edge of the dugout, you know, fearing for my life. (laughs) (laughs) And then I learned, you know, I got better and I, and I learned how to stand up in these dugouts, but I, I spent a lot of time falling in the water. And then gradually, normally it's a two, it's a three person crew. One sits in the back with the paddle to steer and two stand in the front to push up the rapids. And I went from being the, the number three pole guy 
to the number two pole guy, to the number one pole guy, to even times being the only pole guy and taking my dugout up and down the river. And mm, I'm going to get mushy. Uh, it's, it's beautiful beyond words. That skill and that memory is beautiful beyond words. Wow. Yeah. It, you know, it. hearing you describe it reminds me of tree climbing because it's a direct connection with nature. You know, you're, yep. you're interacting with that tree and climbing that tree. You're interacting with the water and climbing that water. And I've never, you know, touched a dugout canoe, but I've spent hundreds of hours on surfboards and on paddle boards. So yeah. I've made that connection before just in a little different way. You know, it, yeah. it, it, you're, with conne- you're connecting with a natural element and your yep. direct connection to the environment. You know, it's the same thing with hiking a, a big or rock climbing or any of that stuff. Anything. And you, yeah. You, you have an experience and you're like, how many people have been sitting here doing this or have had I this feel, view? I feel blessed. Yeah, you feel yeah, so yeah. like it's, I, it's like you're in a club of just so few people that get to experience something so magical and it's. Yeah, yeah it, I feel blessed. And especially in the world we're in now, where it's so easy to become detached from your environment. You can go to the movies mm-hmm. or forget a movie. You can grab your phone out of your pocket and just, like, absorb into this digital now. world. <laughs> yeah, you know, like. Yeah, reality is gone. Yeah, and so to, to take an opportunity to kind of reconnect with the environment around you on such a personal level. And then when you do it, you know, if there's an emergency, you're two dugout boat trips and a who knows how much hiking away from help. You know, yeah. so if you're in a in a dugout boat trip in the middle of nowhere, that kind of ups the game. That's kind of like surfing. When you're surfing on a wave of a certain height, there's there's a level of like, and especially if there's a reef or if there's rocks underneath you, there's a a real life. I got to be on point right now. It, me, yep. Mother Nature, and we got to do this dance perfectly. <laughs> yeah. And it and it has this beautiful intensity that enriches your soul like mm-hmm. nothing else. Yeah. And uh, and I feel like I'm in a really small club of like outsiders who learned how to do that. Yeah. And also, I know that that club is more and more finite because those magical tropical forests where those trees live are just like our old growth forest. There's fewer and fewer every year and they're getting torn down and contaminated and, and all of the wild mahogany trees have been harvested. That's unfortunate. And uh, those times are going away. Yeah. Can can you talk about that a little bit? But that's one of those things where you hear about logging in Central America or in South America and that it seems so far away, but as someone that's been there, what is the impact that you've observed? It's devastating. It's devastating. Uh, Everyone knows about wildlife poaching, right? There's wildlife poaching for rhinos and elephants and all these trophy species. Well, there's tree poaching. The the mahogany tree is one of the most valuable pieces of wood in the world. And those trees are poached wherever they grow. And um, if you go to any store and you see the sign that says sustainably harvested tropical wood, it's a lie. Don't buy it. Oh, yeah. Make your countertop out of Douglas fir or white oak or something else. 
no or such your door. Thing as sustainably harvested mahogany. There's no such thing. No. Nope. Yeah, a matter of fact, talk to an arborist because they probably know somebody that mills wood that's harvested yep. within your urban forest. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like yeah, that's way cooler. Keep it local. Get a slab from them. Yeah. Get a local yeah. slab, a beautiful uh, elm or white oak or mm-hmm. something. Yeah, yeah. That's so sad to hear. Well, it, it's I I'm aware of it. I just like, it's sad to hear it from someone who is like in the place that you hear about. You know, yeah, and seeing the devastation a, and has a firsthand experience okay. of that. So I want I want to finish with this one. Um, I was lucky enough to participate in the. Uh, filming of a documentary in Honduras that took place in the Rio Platano Biosphere Reserve. Mm-hmm. And the name of that documentary is called Paradise in Peril. You can go to Google and look. Uh, the film is freely available on Vimeo. And all you have to do is type in Paradise in Peril, Honduras. And uh, that movie will blow you away. And when you, when you watch, you know, 30 minutes of beauty and then five minutes of devastation that breaks your heart. So imagine living that. Yeah. In cold blood. I've got it on cue. So I'll call you later crying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's, uh, it's one of those things that, like I was saying, it's happening so far away. It's easy to push it to the back of your mind, but it, yeah. It's a reality, and as the world gets smaller, it becomes that much more important. Um, Thank you. So, real quick, is there anything you want to plug for Canopy Watch? Any social media? Any how how can people get a hold of you if they hear this and they want to uh, help connect out. and help out? Yeah, tree thinkers in the world. We have a website called CanopyWatch.com. We are on Instagram at canopy underscore watch and we're on Facebook at canopy watch international. Um, please, please check us out. When I say that uh, we do this international training for young biologists in Latin America every year, Oh, it costs around uh, $25,000 without considering the equipment to do that event every year. Um, and we've got something like, Oh, twenty-five thousand to thirty thousand dollars worth of equipment invested this in this. We can only do it from the goodness of the hearts of everyone else who believes uh, in in the beauty of trees and is willing to make a donation. Uh, because we are not charging these these young scientists from Latin America. They can't pay for it. They don't have the money. They don't have those benefits that we have in our country. Um, if you go to canopywatch.com, there's a donate page. You can make a donation right there. It's, it's almost instantaneous. Um, and if you believe in our work enough, we need to write grants. Uh, we could use grant money for 2022. And we're always trying to raise equipment that we can donate to our students or use to train them. And so if you have access to equipment, you've got some new condition ropes or harnesses, or you work for a company that has access to for that equipment, uh, go to our website, go to the contact page, email me, and um, let's make the world better. All right. And so uh, I think we've come to a, a good time to wrap it up. So, uh, Jamie, you got any final thoughts? Yeah, first, uh, David, I'm really glad that I, I got to meet you and climb with you on uh, June 5th. 
<laughs> and uh, <laughs> make a new friend. And I want to say I appreciate your passion. Um, I think it's kind of contagious. I'm all fired up right now, <laughs> ready to go get some stuff done. Um, and I just want to touch on the idea of getting more people into the canopy, like go grab a friend, grab a loved one, you know, relative, like whatever, and take them climbing. Yeah. Cause the more people yeah. we can get to see these trees as just not like static green things to see that their life and they also host life, you know? Yeah. And just appreciate the importance of them. Um, getting people in trees is huge. I almost think I should start a campaign to put politicians in trees. If you know a politician, <laughs> go take them climbing. That's a great <laughs> idea. I, I want to I do those events, so let's put our heads together. Sweet. I want yeah. to get the city council and the mayor yeah. and the governor and, and those people in the tree. So, uh, so let's do it. I work with Altenhoff, uh, with Scott Altenhoff at the City Eugene Urban Forestry. And I think it's actually next week. We're taking uh, some mayor, the mayor, and some city, city councilors yeah. climbing. Oh, cool! Nice. Yep. So uh, officially, we're kicking it off. <laughs> okay, let's do more. And it's a uh, tree thinking challenge to anybody listening. Uh, organize an event and try to get your uh, local elected officials into trees. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> the challenge. Cool. Well, this has been a very pleasant conversation for me and um i i love birds and i love trees and so i want to my main takeaway from this is to reach out to fellow arborists and just have them kind of pay more attention to i loved what you said about climbing like a scientist um because sometimes people don't notice the nests they don't notice birds in the cavities they don't think about the dead wood i really want to kind of uh, reach out to anybody um, that would normally overlook things like that and, and just have them appreciate it more. I was first struck by this when I was climbing a spruce tree, and it was right next to a sequoia, and there is a, I don't know if it's pileated or pileated. David, help me both. out. It's both. People okay. say both. I'm going to say pileated because I'm from the South. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a pileated woodpecker in a giant sequoia, and it was just right on my level making eye contact with me. And I would, like, I would continue to climb this tree, and it would, it would ascend oh, wow. as I was ascending. Wow. It was fast. It was just so interested in me as I was in this tree. And, um, and that kind of gave me a new perspective. And now, I mean, even just yesterday, I found I found a little blue jay feather on the ground. Mm -hmm. It was pointed right towards the tree we were about to climb. Oh, wow. So I put it at the base of the inclusion for nice. good juju, you know. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> but I, th I think birds are magical. And I, I love what you do, David. And it's it's really inspirational. So um, thank you. Yeah. And I, I just want I just want more people to to appreciate wildlife and uh, the thank you. the trees that you know, are their homes. So thank you so much. Well, I want to thank the three of you. Um, one thing I've learned is that tree climbers, arborists have a really tight knit community. They all know each other. They all help each other out. If someone's in a bind, you know, someone's got their back. I feel a little bit like an outsider sometimes because I'm not, I'm not a professional arborist. I don't, I don't do arboriculture five days a week. But I love being a part of that community. I love being a part of that brotherhood. And 
this uh, podcast has brought me back in. It's been great to share with the three of you and all of the all of the listeners of this podcast. Um, and I like to be someone who's sharing a new perspective and just helping enrich our community of three brothers and sisters in the in the, with the, the unique knowledge and sort of skills and and views that I have. It's great to share and thanks for having me so that I had a platform. That's been great. Oh, thank you. Oh, yes, mm-hmm. thank you. And uh, no need to feel like an outsider. You are definitely a member of the Tree Thinking Field crew now. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> part of our tree family. Yep. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, my my final thoughts. Uh, I'm going to go back to the the kind of going turning your fear into your confidence. You know. Don't look at fear as something that's going to stop you as much as something that's an opportunity to help build you and uh, take you to another level. Um, obviously, you got to be safe. You got to do your triple checks, uh, but but turn that fear into confidence. Um, and then another thing that really stood out was the problem solving. Uh, just from the tree thinking perspective, I remember I've talked about doing a tree podcast quite a bit. And I've had a lot of people kind of make fun of the idea of doing a tree work podcast. Like, oh, that's so niche. Who wants to hear about trees and raking? Oh. And, you know, and it's like, well, I know I would. So, you know, that's enough yeah. for me. Like, I know me, Jamie, and Becca, and we're going to have a lot of fun talking about it. So if you want to tune in, cool, tune in. If you don't, that's cool. But it got to a point where it was all about problem solving. Mm-hmm. You know, is I remember trying to figure out how to do it. And Jamie's like, well, dude, I'll come over once a week. That's how I did my band practice. Mm-hmm. And so then he'd come over and I had like an old USB mic. And so we just had one mic and we played around with that. And it was like, well, this isn't going to work. We got four of us, so we need to get more. Okay, what's the problem? We got to get more mics, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And, and that's why we're here is that kind of same energy on a much smaller level. We weren't moving to Central America. We just bought some mics on the Internet, you know. <laughs> Yeah. But it's the, the same idea of not letting someone stop you or not letting yourself stop you. I won't be denied. Exactly. That's I right. won't be denied. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, we'll just, we'll, uh, we'll live on with that thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, I'm adding that for, to my vernacular. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I could use it. Yeah. Will not be denied. Uh, and, uh, Yeah. Also, if you want to make a world, the world a better place, go donate some money to uh, David Anderson and Canopy Watch, and they will put good use to it to uh, real-world solutions uh, to some problems. So uh, with that, I'll say stay safe and be a boss hawk. <laughs> <Ow>! <laughs> Thanks, David. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Bye.